The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited to introduce to you my special guest this week, Leslie Stahl. Leslie has had a recognizable face and name in most every American household. Her career started at CBS as a White House correspondent during the presidencies of uh, President Carter, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush. She moderated Face the Nation from 1983 to 1991, hosted 48 Hours Investigates, and has been with 60 Minutes for 21 seasons now. Without a doubt, she is one of the most trusted reporters of our time. Leslie, welcome to A Current Life. Wow, Jimmy, that was so nice. <laughs> well, I've had the pleasure. <laughs> I've had the pleasure of watching you every Sunday while I know in our household I'm a huge football fan and and uh and usually runs about fifteen minutes, comes in about fifteen minutes as the game runs over, and I know that I'm we're all running into the kitchen and all sitting down and watching. So I've been a big oh, fan of yours fantastic. and of the show. Thank you. We all go crazy when those football games run <laughs> over, praying everybody will stay with it. But <laughs> Well, they do. It's they been... do, actually. Our ratings go up when we have a, a second football game like that. I can imagine. I imagine that uh, the, the better the game that uh, it affects. But your show has really been a part of, I think, so many people's lives over, certainly over the last couple of decades. And, you're, uh, I've been fascinated, really, with so many things. I wanted to kind of start off with the early years, kind of what life was like for you growing up in Lynn, Massachusetts, and, and what you were like in school, and maybe a little bit about your growing up years. Okay. Well, I was born in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, but I grew up in Swampscott, Massachusetts, which was right next door, right on the water, the prettiest town in America, uh, really. I've, I have been going back quite a bit until very recently, um, to visit my mom, who, jo- who died just a couple of months ago. So I go home a lot, or have. Uh, what was I like growing up? Oh, gosh, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you. <laughs> this is so humiliating. I was a substitute cheerleader. A wow. substitute cheerleader, right. Didn't quite make it, but there I was, kind of marching in the back of the band. Um, what else? Uh, I really didn't like high school. Um, and I forget a lot about it, uh, and I have, it's not even an age thing. I, I was forgetting it when I was 30, so did you get in that's trouble? kind of psychological, I guess. Did you ever get in trouble, or did you have obstacles that you had to overcome? I know I did, so. <laughs> yeah, no, 
not really. No. Um, I, I had a very close family. Uh, my parents stayed married. Um, I had a younger brother um, who I loved. Everything was fine, but I don't know. I can't even, I can't, I can't walk around the high school in my mind, mm-hmm. even. Well, you know, I, I, this show is really about the journey, and, and uh, we often talk about a lot of the obstacles or the things that change people. Who do you think was your greatest influencer growing up? Well, I, I would have to say that it was that my parents were so unlike each other and that they disagreed on politics. And I'm... It, it wasn't a straight line for me into journalism, but I do think that they would argue so much about politics, and whoever was speaking seemed to be right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I got this feeling that I needed to be on the outside looking in and not taking a side. Was uh, that difficult? And, well, I think it became natural to me, and because you know, I never knew which one of them was right when I was growing right. up. And one was liberal and the other was conservative, and it went like that. And I remember when my mother was voting for Nixon, and my and she was voting against Adlai Stevenson, and my father was so frustrated with her. <laughs> I remember the fights over Nixon when I was a kid. Well, you know, I grew up really during the Vietnam days in, in the 60s, and so we had just perpetual fighting in our household. We had six kids, and... Oh. Uh, my father was a former lieutenant commander in the Navy, and he was pro-Vietnam, and I was not in favor of it. And we would have just knockdown fights at the dinner table. And I went off to college to a very radical school, so I can. Where did you I go? University of Wisconsin in Madison. Oh, right, yeah, in Madison. And, and it was the heyday of you know the the riots and everything. And and I often think back, you know, that it really defined. A lot of, I think, my rebelliousness is I went into business and we went into entertainment. And, and quite frankly, you know my partner, Fred Marison and, and Larry Horwitz, and we all grew up in a, a little community in Cincinnati. So we were able to really isolate. But when we went away to college, you know, you come in contact. I know you went to Wheaton, right? The one in Massachusetts. The one in Massachusetts. Right, not the one in Illinois. Okay. It's a small school. But in my, I'm a little, I'm one little generation ahead of you. And we were the silent generation, and we really were. Uh, it, and when I went to college, there was the only protest that ever happened on our campus was there was one girl there from Cuba, and she burned Castro in effigy in the middle of the campus. That was it for my four years there. So, so it was a more peaceful time. Well, it was a, it was a silent time. I mean, we had there, there was the Korean War. And things mm-hmm. like that, but young people weren't protesting, and I think the Vietnam protests really came about because of the draft, and so many young people were being asked to go and fight, and that created a completely different dynamic, certainly than we have now. Well, yeah. I think you're right. I think that you know the country. I mean, as you know, as part of this, uh, we're watching what's happening at Penn State right now, and 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 it's just a. Uh, obviously, it's an incredibly, it's still unfolding, and we don't know what, uh, you know, all the different circumstances are. But colleges are hotbeds for, for dissension and growing up and challenging things. And, and I have a son at school in, in, in Colorado, and I always find it interesting because it seems that generations skip. I know that I wanted to do the opposite of my father. He was a lawyer, and 
you know, I, I went to law school shortly, and then I just didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to build things and, and tell stories and things like that. That's why I yeah, love but, watching your show, because you really today, are a storyteller. You kids really, today aren't, aren't the way you, you were. Kids don't rebel against their parents as much. I just read a wonderful story or article on the millenniums, the millenn- this new generation of kids, and they really do get along with their parents. So hmm. Times have changed. Times have changed, and I think there's also we're in this information age where everybody is a lot more, you know, aware today of so many things that probably we never really paid attention to or knew about or or wanted to know about. Uh, I know the email generation has changed things greatly, and you know, I find it I find it interesting. I find it fascinating. I uh, I, I was thinking back a little bit on some of the segments I watched. The last one that I just watched you do, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about some of the special things you did, but particularly, um, you know, you went through also the Watergate years too, correct? I did. What? what how did that help define, you know? Oh, me as a reporter? Yes. Uh, well, totally defining, 100% defining, as it was anybody who was writing... Uh, news stories in that era, because that's when we all, the whole country and led by the press, first really became deeply skeptical about the honesty of our leaders. Right. And it uh, infused a, a kind of wariness when they talked to us in in the press corps, um, which I think lasted for 20 years. Uh, I'm not, I think there's been so much pushback that it becomes more difficult. The press is not also as powerful as it was mm. because of the internet. The internet really is kind of a, a, a niche media. Each audience is so much smaller than the audiences were when I was around and certainly during the age of Watergate when the whole country Literally, the whole country was just watching three network news operations every night. Everybody watched, literally, the whole country watched. So if we had a story on Watergate, between the three networks, all doing basically the same kinds of stories, the whole country was watching the same thing at the same time. Don't you we think don't that have was... that anymore. And so I think individual um, news outlets and individual reporters have less influence than they used to. I think it was really the first time that I was really mesmerized and focused entirely on those proceedings. And, and oh, wasn't that something? It really was something, it and it was, was almost a bit of disbelief as well as, you know, you're sitting there and you're talking about and you know you uh, the vivid pictures of of Nixon leaving the White House and boarding the plane and oh, uh, dramatic, it, uh, fascinating. If anybody's listening who wasn't alive then. There never was a news story like that, again, because it involved the president. It was, uh, and it, it, it was a drip, drip kind of story right. that evolved over years. So vert, almost every day, there was another little drop that came out. It took forever, but it, it began to, uh, things began to circle around the president of the United States. Do you think it was really the first time or the what the lead up because I still think today people are so cynical about their leaders and 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 you know I and more distrusting than ever of Washington politics and I think we're seeing a lot of that today and and uh, I obviously that was probably the beginning wasn't it Well you know 
I think the distrusting, well, I, I, let me take that back a little bit, but I think most of the distrust today is because of the polarization and the nastiness. Back then, it, it grew out of a, a corruption at the highest level, a corruption in the White House. Uh, everybody votes for the president. It was something that every single person in the United States in, in some way was, was riveted by. Uh, and it, it wasn't, uh, gosh, it was more explosive for some reason than even now. And when people say things have never been this angry as they are now, I always say, no, that's not true. Things were angrier back then, infinitely so. I think uh, a lot of that was also the attachment. I, I think you would agree with 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 the Vietnam War and Nixon. Yeah, added that moment. added onto it. Absolutely, absolutely. And he had promised to get get the get us out. Right. And then he didn't. So yeah. So that had a big effect on you as you were growing through your reporting and and really telling the stories. At what point in time, I would say, when you were uh, in your earlier years, did you know? what you want it to be or what you want it to grow into? Uh-huh. Well, it certainly wasn't early. I, I had a very um, strong, influential mother who informed me at the earliest time I can remember that I was going to have a career. She used to say, not a job. <laughs> you will have a career. And then she would say, I don't care what it is, but you will have something that, that, that will last and she proposed medicine. She proposed architecture, and I kind of drifted. I, I did. I went to. Um, I was thinking about medicine, and was on that path, and got to graduate school in zoology and hated it. Never wrote for the school newspaper. Never even knew anything much about journalism. It wasn't presented to me. It never entered my mind. Uh, I was working. I gave up pre-med and got a job that I, I got it through an ad in the New York Times. I went to work for the mayor of New York on his uh, speechwriting staff and walked into the newsroom one day and said to one of the reporters, tell me what you do all day. Tell me what every little step of your day. And he finished the, his little story, and I knew. And it was that easy. I knew. But when we, when first of all, that is what I call a wow moment. It was wow. When when I when we come back, we're going to take a short break. Uh, We can talk a little bit about you know kind of the cornerstones of your life and career, and particularly some of the interviews with sixty minutes. But uh, we'll take a short break. This is Jimmy Gould, your host, with uh, our special guest Leslie Stahl, and you're listening to A Current Life on Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world. 
50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How has your belief system been formed? Has it been based on others telling you what to believe? Do you desire to make changes in your life that you know will bring you deeper fulfillment? Tune in to The Ripple Effect with Katherine Cloward for your weekly dose of inspiration and encouragement. Whether it be in your business, personal relationships, or family life, this show will help you recognize and trust your intuitive knowing. Catherine and her guests will help inspire you to make fulfilling choices for your life. The Ripple Effect is heard live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. Uh, We're here with our very special guest, Leslie Stahl. Uh, Leslie, we spent the last segment really talking about the early years, and what I wanted to touch on in this segment was a little bit about, you know, your 21 years with CBS and and with 60 Minutes in particular, and and obviously in today's world, you know, everybody's going through a very difficult job market. I think that's one of the biggest things that's affecting our recovery, and you've spent the majority of your career with CBS, and with one company throughout your working life. I mean, uh, that's just not common. What are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, I've been at 60 Minutes for 20 years. I was with CBS in Washington for 20 years before that. Wow. So it's been 40 years, which is an incredible thing for me to hear coming out of my own mouth. Who would have <laughs> thought that in a million years? Um, yeah, it is true that, that, first of all, most people today don't stay in one place. But when I started, what I've done is more common. So I may be the tail of this thing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. The other thing is people who come to 60 Minutes try very hard never to leave because this is the best job in journalism by far. I mean, I, I can't think of any journalist, certainly in broadcast news, now you who went from, are happier than the people at 60 Minutes. So you were in Washington really for half of that time and then, yes. and then moved to New York? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's so unusual today because, you know, uh, we're in the 
really in the business of building businesses, particularly small companies, and and taking them into making them big companies. And we've probably hired tens of thousands of people around the country, you know, Fred and myself and Larry, building businesses through our private equity fund and, and doing Broadway plays and movies and various things. And the thing that we're seeing today, and, and it actually allows me to touch on a particular show I watched I guess it was the week before last, I think, when you had Jack Abramoff on. Right. And while I'm watching the show, I'll just give you my thought, because this financial crisis has been so deadly in our industry, in private equity, which really creates the majority of jobs, or certainly a, a good handful of the jobs in our country, because it was really designed to invest government money to find jobs for people and create jobs and find new businesses. And while I was listening to you talk to him, I could see your face. And I remember at one point you said to him, I'm really mad at you. <laughs> I was. And it almost looked to me that maybe you had known him for a while. Oh, no. Okay, so that was the first, because I was ready to come out of my chair and strangle him for the simple reason that, it was his. It's really the legacy of what the financial industry and people like him, lobbyists and banks and everything, have done to our economy. I mean, they just basically pillaged it, and now we're all paying the price. You can't get money for loans to build businesses. People are out of work, and and we think there's a tremendous amount of hopelessness going on. And I was just curious, you know, what your reaction to him was. Number one, and number two. How do you prevent yourself from going out of your chair sometimes? Well, first on Jack Abramoff, for people who are listening and might not have seen it, he was that lobbyist, one of the most successful lobbyists, I put that in quotes, made the more money, uh, had the most influence in Washington during the 90s, really, and uh, was totally corrupt. And he finally got caught. And by corrupt, I mean, and he admitted this on 60 Minutes, he was buying, he was bribing, and ended up owning, he said, 100 members of Congress. I heard that. It was incredible. He said that, and I believed him. 100 members of Congress were in his pocket, and when I say he owned them, if he had a client and he wanted some special tax break, some special grant money for his client... He found a way to get that money and he would, uh, to get that special benefit for his client. And he told, uh, told us on the air how he did it. And it was genius. And there were no fingerprints. You couldn't tell. You, could, you couldn't thread your way back to find out how his client, Mr. X, Y, and Z, got the special benefit. You know, I've, it, I've... But, but it was so corrupt. And what I'm still, listen to me, I'm hot and passionate even <laughs> telling you. I mean, he was so sleazy and so, uh, I don't know, he was, he, he was without scruples, without morals, without any sense of the destructiveness that he was wreaking on our system. Well, that's what struck me about your interview, because it was almost like it, 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 you were shocked that he was just so out front with his guilt. And almost well, no, a... I, the truth is I knew that he was uh, coming clean. I, I knew he was going to, but I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what he had done. Right. And as he was telling me, it was so insidious and so foul, so rancid. I, well, I was coming out of my skin. I, I, I wondered 
just how difficult it is sometimes when you see that. And then I'm going to talk about a couple other interviews where literally I cried during the interviews. I mean, I, I, I'm not afraid to admit that, that they just touched me. And you see that, and then you see the greed on the other side, because you touch all forms of life. I mean, true. it's a the fascinating... Good, the bad, the ugly. Um, that's a really good question because it's surprising how infrequently I've lost it. It is surprising because I do, we do, I do about 22, 23 pieces a year and each piece has five interviews, right? And I do meet sometimes the dregs and I do meet people also with such sad, deep, horrible tragedies in their lives including sick children, which is always the worst. Um, and and that I don't break down more than I do is surprising. I get angry. Um, it's funny, in a, in a kind of chemical way, like I'm having just having a physical reaction to someone, like an allergy, you know, like I'm breaking out in hives. Some, you, some you of the people I interview. You? Hmm? Does it go home with you afterwards? Sometimes. And then on the other side, when it's, the tragedy is just so overwhelming. Whether it's um, you know people in a disaster area, a war war zone, and you see the refugees fleeing, which I've covered, so you see it on such a huge, gigantic mass scale. And watching it on television is never the same. You, you, we try so hard to bring it into your homes, and you can't even come close to what it's like when you're there feeling it and you can feel the chemistry from the people. Well one of the one of actually you're touching on one of my favorite pieces uh, uh, stories that you've told over a period of time and and it really hit it hit all of us. We here at the, uh particularly at the office all watched it together and revisited it and that was the piece that you did on Rex Lewis Clack oh, and Kathleen and mm. I mean, uh, you know, I would love for you to touch on that for a little while. Oh, sure. Rex was the musical savant, but I'd love to hear your view on that because I have to tell you, it was it was breathtaking. Well, and, my, of and, we and met by the way, life altering. Rex, we met him years ago. He was a little boy, and when he was born, um, he was his mother was basically told, "Forget it. He'll, he's a vegetable. He'll never walk. He'll never talk." He'll never do anything. And, of course, mothers do not give up on their children, and we know that. And she was one of those spectacular women who has ended up devoting her life to this today young man. Uh, but he, of course, turned out to be a musical savant, which they found out serendipitously. His father went out and got him one of those little toy, you know, piano things that you give a little kid. And this child took to it instantly, and they could see he was gifted right away. And he couldn't see, and he couldn't walk, and he couldn't talk, and he couldn't do anything except this little toy piano. And today he's a concert pianist. It's, it's astonishing. What's striking about the piece, because I saw both and went back, it was in, in the, uh, obviously the segment uh, where he's put in the room with the, the flutist, uh, you know, and they and they're composing together I know. and then she, you know she says or he says i can't remember i think he said can i hug you and they hug and 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 the, the teacher def- and, says hug 
and the searching of the emotion of trying to reach the emotional side of it was just it 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 it, it brought tears you know it, it just was so different you know, watch that and then you see the greed on the other side and it's so extremely different i mean uh, you know here was uh no hope and all this greatness coming out of this work that so many people were doing with them and i i thought you touched the core of what it was all about. It was a fascinating piece that you oh, did. Oh, well, Both thank times. you. We Both are times. obviously really proud of Well, we, that we have story. a caller, I'm told. We do get calls from time to time, lots of them, and I think we have a call from Eileen from New York. Eileen, are you with us? Yes, hello. Hi, Hi how are you? I'm well, thank you. Do you have a, uh, a question for Leslie? I do. I wondered, back in the 1980s when you were the moderator of uh, Face the Nation, who was the favorite uh, person that you interviewed, if you can think of one person? I know that's probably <laughs> difficult. It's <but laughs> hard for eight years. But I do have a favorite, and it wasn't because uh, she was easy. It's because she was so tough with me. But it was Margaret Thatcher. Ah. Ah. And ah. she came at the height of the Iran-Contra scandal. And, of course, she was very close to Ronald Reagan. And uh, so she had come over to kind of support him and buck him up. So she finally came on our show, Face the Nation, and I asked her a bunch of very, I have to admit today, snarky questions about how Reagan had lied to her. You're such close friends, and yet he lied. You, I guess she had asked, did you sell weapons to Iran? And he said no. And uh, so I said, well, he didn't tell you the truth. Has it hurt the relationship? Oh, no, our relationship, the American and British relationship is couldn't be tighter. Couldn't be tighter. So I asked it again, you know, what about your personal relationship? Oh, no, the president and I go back. And, uh, and so I, uh, being me, and I say this, uh, I'm, I'm not boasting, I'm saying I shouldn't have done it. I asked it a third time. <laughs> and because she didn't answer me, and I thought, well, and she snapped. She just wow. chewed me for lunch and said that she loved America more than I did. Oh, my God. It was, it was unreal. But it was such great television. Even while I was bloodied and scratched <laughs> and all of it, I knew the audience was going to love it. And we got tons and bags full of mail up on me, all of it. So uh, that I say it's my favorite because uh, it, it caused such a great ripple. And the truth is I thought she was acting. I did not think she was really mad, but I later found out from the U.S. Uh, the British Embassy that she was really mad. So, uh. well, I guess uh, I, I guess it sounds like it certainly was worthwhile. And Eileen, I hope you'll continue to listen to our show, Current Life, and, and thank you so much for your question. Yeah, My pleasure. Thank you. thank you. Well, Leslie, it's time for us to take another short break. Uh, you're with Leslie Stahl. I'm Jimmy Gould, your host of A Current Life. We'll uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in a few minutes. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact... We began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981. 
making wild things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things Gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, with our very special guest, Leslie Stahl. And, Leslie, we were talking a little bit about uh, some of the experiences on uh, 60 Minutes. I want to talk about uh, uh, two particular interviews. Uh, these were actually emails that were sent to us by Kerry, and they really had to do with uh, two different heads of state walking off during your interviews, Boris Yeltsin and I guess it was 1992, the Russian president, and Nicolas Sarkozy in 07, the French president. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like and what your reactions to that were? Oh, that's so amazing for me because uh, I've had several people walk out, uh, and you always do your very, very best to get them back in the chair if you can. And I've had success getting people back in the chair, but not with heads of state. They leave, and that's it because you can't <laughs> chase after them. You know, they've got guards and everything. Yeltsin, um, I was expecting to do a big formal interview in his uh, office or some wonderful room in the Kremlin, but no, I had to do the interview with him on a tennis court. And, uh, he was, I, I, I don't know for sure, but he may have had a couple of swigs for the interview. <laughs> really? Was he, could he hit the ball? Sort of. <laughs> and he was running around in his tennis whites and, uh, refusing to give me an interview, but every time between sets, he would be exhausted. And he'd come and sit next to me, and we'd have the camera rolling, and I'd ask a question or two, and then he'd run off and play tennis. It was ridiculous. And finally, I asked a question that he misunderstood. And he got furious at at the question, which was quite innocent. And I was very bewildered because I didn't know what the translator said, but off he went, and that was the end of that. Uh, so that was very peculiar. 
he was peculiar. The whole thing was peculiar. And I was, I was a little bit devastated. My boss was with me, and he said, you shouldn't be worrying. You're going to have a piece that will show the public more about Boris Yeltsin and his character than if you had had the formal interview. And as it turns out, that, that's exactly what happened. You really got to see the guy in action, how he dealt with people and how he treated people. It said volumes about him, I would think. What about Sarkozy in 07? And the same with Sarkozy. Uh, His wife, um, the first wife, had just left him. And nobody actually knew that. There were suspicions. And the French press uh, have some kind of uh, uh, an understanding that they don't ask their leaders personal questions. And I knew that, but I'm not a member of the French press. So when I asked him what was going on with his wife, and had, had she left him, he he was furious, tore off the microphone, and he swore in French, <laughs> and uh, he 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 was vulgar actually, and threw a tantrum, well, um, and stormed off, and again, except in that case, I knew, I didn't have to have my boss tell me. In that case, I knew that we were going to be able to show the public his disposition, his his volatility, and uh, whatever. So. Well, I appreciate it. We have another caller. It's, uh, I don't have the name, but it's from Atlanta, Georgia. Are you on the air? Yes, I'm here, and this is Wes. Hi, Wes. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me and taking my call. Absolutely. What's your question? Uh, Leslie, first of all, I'm a huge fan of yours and your show, 60 Minutes. Wow. Um, you do a great you. job. Thank you. Um, I wanted to know, who are two people... You were just dying to interview, but ultimately were unable to do so for one reason or another. Well, one comes instantly to mind, um, and that is Nancy Reagan. I did get to interview her once on the radio, on a telephone, rather, um, but it was about her daughter. I always wanted to interview Nancy Reagan because I felt that she was much more influential and powerful in Ronald Reagan's second term than anybody's ever admitted, because I do think he was beginning to fail. You know, his his health and his his uh, his mental facilities, and I think she helped him quite a bit in that second term. Uh, it was a supposition that I had, and I wanted to interview her. Just to talk about it, I, I don't think in a million years she'd ever admit that she was that powerful. But I always wanted just to sit down and, and talk about it with her. So that was one. Um, you know, so many business people turn us down. There's a great uh, reluctance on the part of bankers and, and uh, industrialists um, to submit to to long interviews, which we do. So over the years, there have been that whole category. Although lately, interestingly, and I think this is changing quite a bit, particularly among younger CEOs, um, I've kind of made a little profession out of interviewing heads of tech companies, and uh, so maybe that's changing. It is changing. Well, I think that probably, uh, I think, Wes, I think that from a business standpoint, I think that it has changed because I think people are, are there's so much frustration in the air right now and especially people that have done it right probably want to get the message out there but um, 
I do agree with you that I think there was a huge sea change in that. I just think all of us are going through such difficult times right now. Yeah, I, did, I just interviewed um, uh, the Jeff um, Immelt at GE. Yeah, sure. And um, I've done the head of Facebook and Google and I have one coming up. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but I've got one coming up in about two or three weeks. So We'll look forward. Well, Wes, thank you for calling. I hope you'll continue to listen to A Current Life. So, Leslie, a couple of other emails. We get a lot of emails on this show, and, and really the two key that, that I found interesting was, one, it says, please ask Leslie, have, has she ever been starstruck or nervous to work with someone? Starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't um, think that I, you probably were, but I was curious. I'll tell you, the one interview that I've done in all my career that I really was almost shaking with nerves, it was over a satellite, which is always more difficult because you're staring into a camera. Of course, they're doing the same thing at their end. And so you don't have that human contact to really gauge if someone is uncomfortable or angry or you, you just have no way of judging their, their, their mental condition at that point. Right. This was with Norman Schwarzkopf during the first Iraq war. Wow. And he was, you know, somewhere near the battlefield. And I was interviewing him, and, and I asked him some, a question he didn't like right away at the beginning. And he kind of put me in my place, and I never recovered from it. In, in the interview, you know, he had me back on my heels for the whole interview. He he controlled it then from that first question. I wish I could remember what the question was. Have you seen him since? No, I've never seen him. I I don't think I'd ever seen him. Hmm. I mean, that, seeing someone over a satellite is like watching television. So, well, it, it would actually was him. one of the questions that came up was how has the technology today affected your career? Has it made things easier or harder? Because like, for instance, this interview is really done through four different cities and in 187 countries where people can <laughs> wow. listen in. Well, you know, I lived through the transition from film to videotape. And that was the biggest jump for, for news people, for broadcast news people. Because with film, we had to wait for the film to be developed. And then it often had to be shipped somewhere. And when video came in, it was instant, and we could put it on a phone line, and it could just be on the air. It 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 did a whole lot of things to our profession, many of which were not good. For example, it obviously cut way down on the amount of time you had to think. Exactly. Day, we we would have days actually to think of, of of what to say on a big story, and certainly hours. Now, uh, you know, you, there's no time. Somebody says something, boom, you're thrown on the air, and you're broadcasting. So uh, I've seen quite a bit of change through technology, and now we're seeing another huge sea change with, uh, with the Internet, as you say. Sure. It, and this, this change is having a gigantic impact on our political system, how we vote, how people get their information from our leaders. And we, the system hasn't changed to adapt to, to this. Don't you think the whole social network fabric has affected even the the wars that are going on, whether they be Libya or whatever? It's it's fascinating, and, and in Egypt particularly. Absolutely. It's changed also the nature of leadership. Um, I don't think it's an accident that let's just take Occupy Wall Street. 
it's not an accident that there's no leader. Exactly. It's 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 these kids that generation has grown up with social media and with the internet and it's it's a leaderless medium uh, that the way they communicate and deal with each other. It's very interesting. Well, we're going to take another commercial break when we come back. I'd like to talk a little bit about about your husband Aaron Latham who is a terrific author, uh actually the author of one of my favorite books, Urban Cowboy, a little Ooh. bit about your father, a little bit about your daughter. Oh, also what it was wonderful. like working with the late Andy Rooney. And okay. uh, um, We have I a thank plan. You, I, I thank you. For, I know. I thank <laughs> you for your time uh, so far. I know it's such a busy time for you. You're listening to A Current Life. I'm Jimmy Gould, your host with Leslie Stahl. The show is brought to you by Smart Water and Wild Things Gear and at Space Mall Network. Stay tuned. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You were born a visionary. How do you get closer to your personal vision? Tune in to Visionary Radio with Giselle. Our program is all about evidence-based positive change. Giselle and her guests will bring you stories of positive visions achieved, hope and renewal designed to inspire you in ways that matter in your life, in ways that last and bring you closer to who and where you want to be. This program is for and about real people, and we want you to be a part of it too. Tune in to Visionary Radio with Giselle every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With today's outside pressures and current realities, many of us are feeling a loss of control and freedom concerning our lives, business, and where we stand in society. But that can change. Tune in to The Power of the Human Connection with Chris Schultenover. Through the art of storytelling in authentic human terms, we lead you to true and honest realizations and collaborations to better your life and the lives of others. The Power of the Human Connection is heard live Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Well, we're here with Leslie Stahl. Uh, This is Jimmy Gould. Uh, In our last segment, we've talked a lot about the different interviews in your career path, and we kind of call this fourth segment the meaning of life. And I'm going to ask you a difficult question, and uh, I'll start by giving you our condolences. But we would like to, if you can, tell a little bit about what life was like working with the late Andy Rooney. With Andy, wow. As you can imagine, we're all devastated. Um, And it's so fascinating to me that people who have long and happy and rich careers when the careers come to an end as andy's basically had they often just die i mean i've heard this similar kind of story over and over um 
but let's go back to when he was vibrant. For me personally, and I say this as a young woman, because this is when I'm going back to, uh, Andy Rooney was the most supportive, the most encouraging, the most welcoming person here um, at 60 Minutes. And uh, he was always, uh, if I had a story he liked, he called and came around um, and told me I'd done a great job. I can't tell you how important that is when you come into an institution like 60 Minutes. Uh, I had been warned it was a men, you know, a boys club, and it would be hard for a woman. Um, and the truth is they all welcomed me. They were all terrific to me, too. Mike Wallace was as well. But Andy was special. And over the years, Andy and I and my husband um, and and after his wife died, he had a girlfriend, um, we became social friends. And we had dinner. We lived in the same neighborhood in the Upper West Side of New York, and uh, we became pals. Uh, he, Everybody knows he's a curmudgeon, and he is, and he was, and he was often grumpy, true, but he was also the funniest person you'd ever know. If you were his friend, uh, the generosity was overwhelming. And I wish everybody could have seen him with his family. Do you know that he was a great-grandfather? Uh, he loved his children and is clo- was close to every one of them. He had four, I think, a slew anyway. Um, he was a loving man. And uh, Well, I want you I to know, he's, uh, I know all your listeners here on this show, uh, he meant a lot to the audience and to the people that watched the show. Everybody expected to see him at the end of every show. I, I know, know for so long I watched it, and you have my thoughts and condolences. Well, that's thank you. That's uh, I wanted to, uh, since you mentioned your husband, uh, your husband is Aaron Latham, who happens to be the author of one of my favorite works, which is Urban Cowboy. Well, I wanted to know <laughs> is it true? <laughs> is it true that you hung the phone up on him when you first when you he first called you? It's true. It's true. It's not, it's not a pretty picture. <laughs> it's not a pretty but he called picture. you again, right? Well, he actually he ended up after we did meet. He called me at home, and I I was getting that. This was in the very beginning of my career at six at CBS during Watergate. And I was getting nasty phone calls at my at home, and I had unlisted my number because of it. And then this man calls out of the blue, and I said, how did you get my phone number? And he wouldn't tell me because he'd gotten it from a friend of mine, as it turned out. And I said, and he said, well, I just want to ask you something about work, about Watergate. And I said, uh, you know, you're going to have to call me in the office if it's about work. And basically said, bye, and hung up on him. Um but we we eventually met through that friend, our mutual friend, and uh, and we became pals, really close friends before any romance. We were he had a girlfriend, I had a boyfriend, that kind of thing. But we became best friends. That's how it happened during how, Watergate. How long have all, you been together? Since Watergate, since wow. I think we met in '73. Another rarity in today's life. Yeah, exactly. So let me ask you, your late father, Louis Stahl, owned his own leather finishing company. I think it was called Stahl Finish. And now your daughter, Taylor, and her husband, Andrew, kind of carried on in the family's entrepreneurial spirit and started their own business, Little Barrel, which creates and sells wine-themed accessories, men's ties and belts and dog leashes and headbands, etc. You have to be incredibly proud of her. 
I'm going to give my kid a plug. It's called <laughs> Little Barrel, littlebarrel.com. And Christmas is coming up. And if anybody knows anybody who loves wine, these are, these are not uh, inexpensive products. These are fine, beautiful ties and sashes for women made of silk. And they have a brand new line coming up with gorgeous, wonderful, beautiful dog leashes. Dog leashes, they're spectacular with wine themes. By wine themes, I mean if you see the tie close up, you can see that there are bottles and, and uh, wine glasses and grapes and things like that. But from a distance, uh, you, it just looks like a pretty pattern. Well, so we... that's my kid. She also, by the way, has a real job. Um, and works in, in Hollywood uh, as a kind of junior executive producer at, a, at an independent film company. Well, I, I can tell you, we, we frequent uh, uh, Little Barrel, and oh, uh, it's yeah. beautiful stuff, and beautiful. Uh, I recommend it to everybody. The nice thing, Leslie, about owning your own show and doing this type of show is we can talk about anything and plug anything, so I will <laughs> consistently plug LittleBarrel.com. Oh, great, great. And the dog leashes are their new line. Well, I have three dogs, and Fred has four, so we certainly need a lot of leashes. Well, so. and they're fabulous Christmas presents. I, that's what I'm giving this year. So let me ask you, as we have a few minutes left, what was, would you say was your wow moment, both professionally or personally? You mentioned one when you came in and you decided that's kind of what you wanted to do. Was there another time in your life, as you look back, kind of, you know, what really was a turning point or a wow moment, something that just changed you? Well, I would have to go back to Watergate. Um, and I once heard that there had been a study at Rice University on what makes people... They were doing a study on successful people, and they were interviewing them to find out if there was a thread. And when they, they got to me, and they, they were interviewing me, I said to them, have you found the thread yet? And they said, well, not yet, but um, every woman we've interviewed always says, well, I was lucky, and none of the men say that. So I'm about to tell you I was lucky because I got on the Watergate story. And they sent me on it when um, CBS did not think it was a story. It was right in the very beginning. It really did look like a second-rate burglary, as someone in the White House called it. And so they said, well, let's send the new girl because I had just been hired. Um, And I was lucky. They sent me out on what became the biggest story in the world, and it lasted for two years. And because of it, um, I learned how to be an investigator. I learned how to be a, 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 a television reporter who got a lot of work. I did a lot of work. And, and usually when you start at a big company and you start at the bottom like that, you don't get that kind of break. So it was, a, it was, it was luck, and it was timing and all of that. Um, I have, so I have to go back to that moment. And I think the other thing that's been just fantastic for me personally is that I've, I've survived. I'm still well, here. Well, and you, it's it, amazing, it, right? You, you've talked about 40 years and yeah. you've had an impact on so many people. Uh, you know, it's been a wonderful time that you've given us today. Uh, our time is up and, I want to thank Leslie Stahl for sharing her journey with us. It's been a total honor for me. Well, Jimmy, you made it fun, you made it easy, you made it enjoyable, and uh, and uh, it's a great show, and thanks for having me on. 
Well, I, uh, I'm going to tell everybody we're going to sign off. Uh, this is uh, Jimmy Gould, your host. Uh, we've been talking with Leslie Stahl. Stay tuned next Friday at 3 o'clock Eastern for another inspiring hour with our next guest, John Davis, American film producer and chairman of Davis Entertainment, who's done over $4 billion worldwide. Until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.